0: My dear brethren and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we'd like to begin our study this evening by referring to a particular proverb. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 24, and at verse 16, really provides an apt introduction for our consideration tonight of David's lamentation, which, of course, primarily concerns the death of Saul and Jonathan and David's great grief, and sadness and sorrow of heart of having to consider the tragic news that he had just received. When we're looking at David and Jonathan, whose lives we have studied to some degree in our considerations earlier in this class when we dealt with the first book of Samuel, were the lives of two totally different men. And in Proverbs 24 and verse 16, we get some kind of an inkling of two classes of people that may be related to the truth and their attitude toward that truth, particularly against the background of trial and suffering and tribulation. Proverbs 24 and verse 16 says, For a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again, but the wicked shall fall into mischief. The word mischief is more correctly rendered as calamity in the revised version. So the wicked falls into calamity. Now he doesn't get up again. But on the other hand, a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again. Jonathan was that sort of a man. We have certainly learnt some of the trials and the suffering and the anguish of heart that he experienced in trying to remain faithful to his father and yet also to remain faithful to David, who again were two totally different men. And Jonathan very remarkably managed to tread that very fine line in that he never ever betrayed his father while at the same time he never endorsed the wrongdoing of his father. And at the same time, by his remarkable perception of the principles of the truth, he was able never to betray his friend David. That would have been very, very difficult to do. And in all of that, that Jonathan underwent sufferings that we can't contemplate, the things that he had to deal with in his mind and formulate his policy in life as to how he was going to act and maintain his integrity before God at the same time. So the proverb says that a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again. That requires a lot of things. It requires faith. It requires courage. It requires determination. It requires keeping the mind centered firmly upon Yahweh and the principles of the Word. It was required a dogged perseverance to not give in no matter how many times one falls. For the simple reason when we summarise all those things overall that the faith of the word of God, the hope of Israel remains the paramount point in that person's life and no matter how far they may go down in life the hope of Israel And the hope of the gospel is always there above them and they're always staring up to it. So because of their faith, because of their courage, because of their commitment, because of their determination, they will continue to reach back and to try and claw their way back up to the truth that means so much to them. That was Jonathan. But on the other hand, the wicked shall fall into calamity never says anything about him getting up again. You know, what it really means is that in this case, he doesn't get up, he doesn't rise, because in reality, he is in his more natural environment. That's where he feels most at home. And that is because the truth does not exercise that much of a strong influence in his life. And the proverb is very apt in that sense, in applying it to Saul. In this respect that once Saul began his decline in the truth and it became so evident that that was so, we never read of any incident where he tried to really get himself back up to a spiritual state of mind where he could again seek oneness and harmony with Yahweh. Saul's life really as we might have observed earlier on in the studies, it's really like watching a person go downstairs. They take a step down, then they take another step, then they take another step and another step. They're going down step by step all the time. That, sadly, tragically, was the life of Saul. But it was not the life of Jonathan. So, what we're going to be looking at here this evening is David's lamentation over the deaths of Saul and Jonathan. And you know, in ancient Israel, these words recorded from verse 17 to the end of the chapter became a very important part of Scripture. And they were to be taught in Israel, these words, as we shall see, God willing, in a little while, they were to be taught in Israel for certain very special, specific reasons. Now when we come to this section from verse 17 on and we bear in mind the fact that against the background of that is the first 16 verses which we considered at our class last week where the Amalekite comes out of the wilderness, comes to David, seeks David out, brings to him the crown of Saul and we concluded as you may recall with the last point that it was because Saul had refused or declined to remove the crown of the Amalekite that now we find an Amalekite is the one who removes the crown from Saul and he came to David with this crown thinking that he would ingratiate himself to David that he would make a great fellow of himself and get very wonderfully rewarded by bringing Saul's crown to David so that David could now say right this is my crown which rightly belongs to me I'll put it on my head and I am now the king but he didn't realise that a true Israelite does not think the same way as an Amalekite or a Gentile. He has different motives, he has different aims, he has different goals in life. And so he paid with his life and as we saw, David invoked the law against him in verse 14 and verse 15. David said unto him, how wast thou not afraid to stretch forth thine hand to destroy Yahweh's anointed? Of course when the man said that he had caused, the, brought about the death of Saul the finality of his death, that was a lie as we saw last week but nevertheless out of his own mouth he was condemned and David called one of the young men and said go near and fall upon him and he smote him that he died. And so We look now at the Lamentation and we find that these verses from 17 to 27 may be divided up into four sections. From verse 19 to 22, we have David in mourning for the national defeat at Gilboa and making reference to the personal courage and bravery of Jonathan and Saul. Then in verse 23, there's another little special section where David remembers Saul and Jonathan in happier times, when they had all been friends together and when they had sought together the best interest of Israel, when there had been happiness and joy in the companionship of the three together. Just a beautiful little point that is made in verse 23. Then verse 24 to the middle of verse 25, we have him lamenting the fact that Israel must now be called upon to remember that Saul had been their king, that he had been the anointed of Yahweh, and they were to remember that he had initially provided some qualities of kingship that could be appreciated. And we saw some of those things in the 1st of Samuel, chapter 10 and chapter 11. Shortly after, Saul became king. And then for the rest of verse 25 to verse 27, we have David's personal mourning, in particular for the death of Jonathan. And some of these words that we have here before us and some of the thoughts that come here from David show just how much he was indeed a type of the Lord Jesus Christ how he shows a spirit in his attitude towards Saul and Jonathan and toward the truth and toward his God that is very, very much like so many of the things that the Lord Jesus Christ not only said but also did. So then in the outpouring of his very genuine grief we find above all else in this lamentation that David lost all sight of the advantages that would come to him personally upon the death of Saul. He has no thought in his mind about the fact that now he is to be king. He's not even considering that. And this, of course, is typical of the integrity of David's character. And perhaps above all else we find that David's lamentation shows his complete forgiveness for all the wrongs that Saul had perpetrated against him. We've had our attention drawn this evening in uh, Brother Simeon's comments the words of the Lord forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There is no room in the mind or the attitude of a son or daughter of God, no matter whether they lived in, in Abrahamic times or under the law of Moses or in apostolic times or today, there is no room in the life of a son or daughter of God to hold an attitude of what the world describes today as maintaining the rage I think that was an expression that came into use after 1975 when uh, Sir John Kerr dismissed the then government of the day and uh, the ex-Prime Minister and uh, some of his associates vowed that no matter what happened they would maintain the rage. What an attitude. You see, an attitude like that leads to bitterness, And bitterness is one of the most dreadful things that we can ever have penetrate into our hearts. You will read right through these verses, and we have done tonight, in the first second of Samuel, chapter 1, verse 17 to verse 27. There's not a trace of anything of that in David. It's all self-effacing. He doesn't mention himself. His mind is upon those who have died and trying to bring to mind the best things that he could gender up in his mind concerning the ones for whom he is now mourning. Bitterness is a dreadful thing. We may take some slight against us that has been said or done or something of that nature. We just don't find it within ourselves to really get rid of that from our minds or to overlook it or to put it to one side. See, bitterness is really very much akin to hatred. Bitterness is something that lodges within ourselves and it just stays there and it eats, eats, eats like a cancer and the results of it are disastrous and very, very tragic and not only for ourselves but very often for those associated with us. We can't afford to have an attitude that we will maintain the rage that we will develop bitterness within ourselves. We don't find that in David's character. And yet as we think of that, let us also bear in mind the fact that from a purely natural point of view, because that's always what's wrong, isn't it? The natural point of view. One might have expected that David and his men would have thrown their hats into the air and rejoiced at the great news of Saul's death. Because now the great obstacle that has pursued David for year after year after year since he was anointed to be the next king over Israel, that great antagonism of Saul has now been removed. And David can now ascend the throne and take the glory and the power and the authority and everything that goes with it. There would be an end to David's sufferings and his persecutions and he would rise to power and glory. But we find none of that here, neither with David or amongst his men either. That would have been a very ungodly and a very fleshly reaction. So that although distressed and saddened at the death of Saul and Jonathan and all the brethren that died with them, David calmly awaits the unfolding of the guiding hand of providence And there it is in chapter 2 and verse 1. As soon as this lamentation is finished, it came to pass after this that David inquired of Yahweh, saying, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? Where was his mind concentrated? Within himself? The greatness that he's now going to attain? The power, the position, the respect, the standing? His mind is with Yahweh. And he wants divine guidance. So this lamentation reveals certain very important qualities that were manifested in David's character. And from this lamentation we learn a lesson from David that was to be taught in Israel that he did not desire to be elevated above his brethren for the sake of satisfying personal pride and self-gratification. He would have been an outrageous Hypocrite, would he not, to compose such a lamentation had those fleshly desires and ambitions burned within him? His words here show that he didn't desire to see disaster and death come upon Saul, although Saul had made David an enemy, but David had never ever made Saul an enemy. He didn't want to see disaster come upon Saul, that he might personally gain an advantage for himself. So therefore in these verses David shows very beautifully and touchingly in this lamentation that men who have dedicated their lives to serving Yahweh seek only his honour and glory and the advancement of his purpose towards its ultimate and inevitable fruition, whatever it might be. And he reveals a very calm awareness of Yahweh's will and a firm trust in the unfailing hand of providence. And so David's grief and this lamentation that records it has got to be understood from all of those points of view. And they show also very, very strongly David's continuing loyalty towards Saul. We saw that in our earlier studies, that despite everything that Saul had done to David and tried to do, even to the taking of his life, David had never ever turned against Saul. He had never said anything disloyal against the king because as a spiritually minded Israelite, he had to recognise that for good or ill, Saul was Yahweh's anointed until Yahweh decided otherwise by removing him. It was Yahweh's job to do that, not David's. So, never at any time had David spoken of or countenance talk of rebellion or revolt against Saul. So, we're going to see in these verses that David viewed the entire affair involving the deaths of Saul and his sons as a terrible tragedy which need never have occurred. Had Saul given his sons the right direction, had Saul uh, conducted himself in a way that would have made him at one with David in the spirit of the truth. And so understandably, David has recorded the pathos and the grief and the heartache and the genuine suffering that he experienced at this particular time. And that was not unique Uh, In that sense, was not unique in in the uh, view light of what Saul had done. You see, Samuel had adopted a very similar attitude. We see here David weeping over the death of Saul, and wonder, well, you know, why, why, why should he do that? But Samuel had done that before Saul was dead. If we just keep a hand in there and go back for a moment to First of Samuel, chapter fifteen, you may recall that we spend a little time looking at these words at the time. First of Samuel chapter um, 15 and verse 35 and we read there after the kingdom has been taken from Saul or it's been said that a wood Yahweh would do that, the background of verse 35 of course is found in verse 28. And Samuel said unto him to Saul, Yahweh hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day and hath given it to a neighbour of thine that is better than thou. So Samuel saw and knew that the kingdom was to be overthrown from the hands and the control of Saul. So in verse 35 we read that Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Which means of course right up until the day of his death. He never saw Saul again. It doesn't mean that he saw him on the day of his death. The Hebrew indicates that Samuel came no more to see Saul again uh, right up until the day of his death. He hadn't seen him at all. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul and Yahweh repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. Look at the next verse in chapter 16 and verse 1. Yahweh said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul? Why did Samuel mourn? for Saul, in the same way that David did. Because Samuel and David, although at different periods of the history of the nation, in the sense that Saul was still alive and thriving when Samuel mourned, when David mourns, he's dead. But both Samuel and David were of one mind on the matter. They realised what Saul could have been, what Saul could have done, what could have been achieved by Yahweh through a faithful king and a faithful monarch. And they knew that in the kingdom being rent away from Saul and in the death of Saul, in the most ignominious manner, that Yahweh was dishonoured. That the name of Yahweh's nation was besmirched. That Saul himself had departed from the truth. And no true servant of Yahweh ever takes any delight in a tragedy like that coming upon anyone. It's a tragedy, it's a sadness, it's a sorrow. It brings grief of mind. So that's why Samuel mourned, that's why David mourns as well. Not only out of memory for Saul, but what could have been. So that in this very tragic lamentation, David tries to express the best that he knew about Saul rather than gloat over his worst characteristics. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, this lamentation says nothing about Saul has met his just end and his just reward and a good thing too. We read nothing of that here at all. So, the the lamentation is set out in a poetic form in the Hebrew and therefore it comes very, very strongly to the fore in, in that way and it's got certain poetic license in it. Uh, wherein extremes are often used. We might read some of these verses and say, well, they're literally not true. That may be so in certain respects, but basically it's expressive of the Hebrew. You know, the great thing about the Hebrew language is when you're using a poetic meter or a poetic form, if you were to express, for example, your love, the extent of your love for someone, you would mention the hatred you have for the enemy even though that hatred might not really be a real hatred at all. For example, there's an example of that in Malachi 1 and verses 1 and 2. Another interesting passage to look at is in Genesis. uh, Genesis chapter um, 29. And uh, just notice this little verse here because this is really quite interesting. Genesis 29 and uh, verse 30 and 31. This is Jacob. (coughs) That says that he went in also unto Rachel. And he loved also Rachel more than Leah, and served with him yet seven other years. And when Yahweh saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now, there's no real evidence that Jacob literally hated Leah. But you see, what it's doing there is much the same as in that passage in Malachi one, verses one and two. It's it's there as a as a poetic form of expressing the extent of the love for the other one. So here, then, in verse seventeen of the second of Samuel chapter one, David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. So Israel's king has died, and died in very ignominious circumstances. And his close and intimate friend Jonathan has also died in these same tragic circumstances. And this is what permeates and dominates David's mind at this point. Try and feel for him. Try and picture David sitting there contemplating the death of the king, the death of a fine brother in the truth like Jonathan, the other king's sons, all the men of Israel, who had gallantly stood that day on Mount Gilboa and also fallen in battle. The dishonor that they brought upon the name of Yahweh. The besmirching of the, upon the nation of Israel. The ignominy of it all. And this is David's mind. So in verse 18, we read that also he bade them teach the children of Israel the use of the bow. Behold it is written in the book of Jasha. It seems a strange introduction to the lamentation. He bade them teach the children of Israel the use of the bow. But you notice there the words the use of are in italics. Obviously put there by the King James translators because they thought it needed that to give it the sense but it doesn't. That takes the sense away. It is the lamentation of the bow. What David is actually saying here is that he bade them teach the children of Israel the bow. So really it should be known as the lamentation of the bow. Why? Well, basically because the Benjamites were especially skilled in the use of this weapon. And Jonathan himself was especially recognised for his ability with the bow. You'll notice that in verse 22. It's an allusion to battle there. In uh, the 1st of Chronicles chapter 8 and verse 40 we have a reference to the Benjamites and their ability with a bow. In chapter 12 and verse 2 also and in the 2nd of Chronicles chapter 14 and verse 8 Actually that first one is really worth looking at because it does mention essentially the, uh, the children uh, of Benjamin but in relation to the chronology of, uh, of Saul. In the First Chronicles chapter 8 and uh, in verse 40 but you'll notice that earlier on in verse 33, from verse 33 to 40 is one section. In verse 33 we read of Mur who begat Kish, and Kish begat Saul, Saul begat Jonathan, and so on down here. We come down to verse 40. And the sons of Ulam were mighty men of valour, archers, and had many sons, and sons' sons, 150, all these are of the sons of Benjamin. Now, all of those other references that I've mentioned there, uh, chapter 12 and verse 2 of First of Chronicles, and again in the 2nd of Chronicles, chapter 14 and verse 8, They mention Benjamin associated with the use of a bow and their great brilliance in that regard. As far as Jonathan himself is concerned, if we make a note to look back to the first of Samuel, chapter 20 and verses 36 to 42, we have there the example of Jonathan's own special ability. Remember when he was going to warn David as to what would happen, how he would get news to him. He was going to use his bow and arrow. And he would, uh, if the target fell short, it would be one message to David. If the arrows went beyond the target, then it would be another message for David. And this, therefore there was an implication in regard to Jonathan's own personal skill in regard to the bow. But also there's another aspect of it as well. And that is that the bow was a symbol for Yahweh's militant power when brought to bear against his enemies. And that had a message for Israel, didn't it, in uh, Psalm 7. And verse 11 and 12, you'll find a special reference in that regard there. And we're all familiar with the words of Zechariah 9 and verse 13, where Yahweh says, When I have made Judah the bow, associated with Judah and Benjamin, and Ephraim the arrow. And Zechariah 9 and verse 13 is relating to when Israel is reconstituted, enlightened in the truth, accepted and reconciled by their God, and they go forth against the nations to establish divine rule in the earth. When I have taken Judah as the bow, fitted Ephraim as the arrow, there is the power of Yahweh in belligerent action against his enemies. All of this is related. And what David is saying here is that he bade them teach the children of Judah the bow. So, Jonathan, just imagine how that will apply. We will just associate this with what has happened in the age to come. When Jonathan and David both become part of that mighty rainbowed angel, the multitude of all the redeemed. When that multitude marches forth to subdue the nations, we will find then that Jonathan, together with David, will be at the forefront of that divine army that will smash the power of flesh. We know that Jonathan had been a mighty and a courageous warrior in Yahweh's service during his lifetime and no doubt he will be again after the resurrection and the glory that is to come. So then, again we see that in this lamentation, David chose to ignore the evil that Saul had perpetrated against him. Now, some commentators and some who have made comments about this particular chapter and this lamentation have suggested because of this that David's lamentation is somewhat hypocritical. But that is not right. Uh, Brother Simeon in his comments showed us something about the principle of forgiveness. That's simply not right. The fact that David chose to ignore the evil that Saul had perpetrated against him was due to the fact that as far as David was concerned the outcome of all that awaited the result the verdict of a higher court than David was out of his hands as far as David himself was concerned it was forgiven and forgotten he would hold no grudge he would not maintain the rage he would not bring his children up with a hearty remembrance of all the things for which he hated Saul. And so that kind of bitterness within the hearts of his children, he wouldn't do that. He wasn't that type of a person. So that what we find David saying here in regard to Saul is very much the same, identical really to that taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Simeon did take us to um, Matthew chapter 18. Uh, Just let's go there for one moment. There's just a point that we'd like to just uh, add to what has been said here. We have, of course, the way in which sins against Yahweh are to be dealt with, sins against the principles of the truth in verse 15, 16 and 17 of Matthew chapter 18. That's dealt with altogether differently to the way in which... We have here that that the Lord counsels Peter to, to deal with those who sin against him personally, say evil against his name, or pass slurs upon him, or misrepresent him, or something of that nature. And so we find then that as Peter chews over what the Lord has said in verse 15, 16 and 17, We find in verse 21, then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Do you know why he said seven times? Because the Jews taught that you forgive a person three times. The fourth time, no go. You don't forgive him four times. That's what was taught. You forgive a man three times, but not four. So, Peter, trying to be generous, doesn't say three times. He doubles it and then adds one. He says till seven times. The Lord says, I say unto thee until 70 times seven. And this has been pointed out tonight. All together, that would come to 490 times. But you see, the interesting thing is that from this verse, verse 23, right on to the end of the chapter, occurs nowhere else, only in Matthew. doesn't occur anywhere else. And the final words in the chapter, as that theme is followed right through virtually, from verse 21 right through to verse 35, the final words in that chapter are not the words, they trespasses. Notice as we might read that in verse 35. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not, every one his brother, their trespasses. Now the words their trespasses" do not appear in the original text. You know, perhaps that's a bit of a shame because it needs to be emphasised. But it doesn't. And the reason why the Lord does not use those words, their trespasses" is because the full emphasis is not upon the trespasses of our brother against us, but upon our necessity to forgive. That's the key word. So that the verse reads, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, as the the man, the master in that parable, if ye from your hearts and that's sometimes hard, isn't it? From your hearts not something that is a mere formal acceptance. Go and say to your brother, I'm sorry for what you did to him, or what you've done. Okay, I'm sorry. From stop. End of matter. That's not what the Lord says. He says, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother. Now that's the spirit of David in the second of Samuel chapter one, in this lamentation. But let's look at one other passage as well. And that is in Colossians. Colossians chapter 3 and at verse 13. There were problems in the Colossian ecclesia. There were personality problems. And bear in mind the fact we are not speaking here of sins against Yahweh which have to be dealt with in the way that the Lord determined in those verses in Matthew 18 verses 15 to 17, these are problems that result amongst brethren and need to be sorted out if the ecclesia is going to live in harmony. In Colossians 3 and in verse 13, Paul says to these brethren and sisters, forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Now, we're well aware of the fact that if we want Yahweh to forgive us for our sins against him, there's not much point in asking him to do that if we're not prepared to forgive those who have sinned against us, personally. David was aware of that spirit. Isn't that incredible? Because that's what we find here, Saul's sins against David. Certainly, alright, they reveal a lack of faith, they reveal an ungodly attitude. But David doesn't use that as an excuse or a reason or a foundation to demean Saul. He doesn't say, Well, well, he had no right to do that to me, he had no right to treat me that way. Because it shows lack of faith to live that way. It shows a lack of understanding of the truth. The man was ignorant. The man was ungodly in his attitude toward me. Would have been a good reason, a good grounds. See, you look at Saul. See what he's done. See what it reflects on the truth. What was his attitude toward the truth? But David accepted all the suffering that came to him at the hands of Saul and he accepted it in the spirit of the truth. And do you know how he accepted it? He accepted it in the spirit of of the 1st of Peter, chapter 2, verses 19 to 21. Although he never met Peter, he never knew Peter, Peter lived long after his day, but David thought in harmony with the Apostle Peter. Let's look at it. In the 1st of Peter, chapter 2. See what we have here. Here was the disposition of Peter. Here was the disposition of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here also was the disposition of David. The man whose words we are reading now in the first of Peter chapter 2, verse 19. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Guess what it's based on? My vote goes to Isaiah 53. That's the basis for that. And look what follows. Verse 20. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults if you do wrong you commit wrong you disgrace yourself if you be buffeted for your faults ye shall take it patiently. Where's the glory in that? You deserve to take it patiently. Is what Peter is saying. But if When ye do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. They're wonderful words, aren't they? They're not always easy to implement. But implement them we must. What glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults you shall take it patiently? There's no glory to God in that in the sense that we've done wrong anyway. But he says the real acceptation in the eyes of the Father is when we do well or we do what that which is right and we are striving to walk earnestly in the way of the truth and we've got to suffer for that and we take it patiently without making a fuss about it, without without attacking Saul as David did not do at any time in his life. Take that patiently because that's what the Lord did. He had more enemies than you could wave a stick at. Look what they did to him. Look at the things they said about him. Yet he was without guile, wasn't he? And he suffered in that way. That is the spirit we find in Peter. That is the spirit we find in David. Now there's one other passage in Peter that comes to mind here and that is in chapter 4 and verse 8. We're going to have a brief look at that the 1st of Peter, chapter 4. You see, David's spirit toward Saul, both before and after his death, had never changed. His attitude towards Saul did not change, remained the same. His his attitude, his spirit towards Saul, before and after his death, is expressed in the 1st of Peter, chapter 4, and verse 8. And bear in mind the fact that there were enough things that could have been used by David Had he decided to turn himself into a politician and rally support, he could have written a book about the things that Saul had done to him. But look what it says here in the first of Peter chapter 4 and verse 8. And above all things, have fervent love among yourselves, for love shall cover the multitude of sins. Now when somebody does something to us, That is not very nice. That is damaging to our name or to our reputation. What's the first thing that comes to mind? Tell the whole world. Tell the whole ecclesial world. Make sure everybody knows about it. Not only brings condemnation upon our foe, but it makes us look just that so much better. Peter says, love, Toward a brother, covers a multitude of sins. And after all, we ask Yahweh to cover our sins. And we have to live by the same principle that that might be done for us. We should do for others what we ask God to do for us in our own relationships with our brethren and our sisters. We don't bring those things out into the open and trumpet them abroad to discredit a brother or brethren or a group of brethren or whatever. We don't do that. The only time that is ever done is when it comes under the category of Matthew 18 and verse 15 and there is no response to a plea to a brother or a sister but by our sinning against Yahweh and bringing disrepute upon his name either morally or doctrinally and it is necessary for them to mend their ways or something must be done about it. But you see, what we're looking at here is the strength of David's character and we're looking at our own actions and the actions of others. And when the time came for David's own sin to be laid bare, when Nathan the prophet came to him and he told him the parable about the man who had the little ewe leg and David's wrath was kingled. And he said, that man shall be put to death. And Nathan said, thou art the man. And David sinned with Bathsheba and his disposal of Uriah was laid bare to David. And what happened to David? Was he put to death? David received mercy from Yahweh because he had shown mercy. He had no hatred against Saul. He had no bitterness against Saul. In the lamentation, it shows us the principle of forgive us our debts. Matthew 6 and verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Our debtors, not God's. god God's going to handle that and God will deal with that at the judgment seat of Christ. So there will be no forgiveness for us by God if we do not forgive others who have wronged us personally. So this lamentation is not merely an outpouring of grief. It is a lamentation that is founded upon a strong spiritual foundation of a perception of the principles of the truth at work. That's what it's all about. And this lamentation is not only recorded in the Word of God, divinely inspired, but it was also found in a book that was apparently in common usage for many, many generations, known as the Book of Jasher, which David refers to it as here, the Book of Jasher. you notice the margin there, the Book of the Upright or sometimes it's referred to as the Book of the Righteous. And all that is known about it is that it was apparently a collection of odes or poetic forms extolling the virtues of uprightness and perhaps uh, supplying historical records of some of the examples of the faithful in days of old. It's only referred to once else in the Scriptures. You'll find that in the margin as well. You'll find a reference to it in Joshua chapter 10 and verse 13. So they were told to teach this in Israel. Why? That the people of Israel, men, women and children, might learn humility before God and before their brethren. Out of this lamentation. In the same way as when David wrote Psalm 51, Concerning his sin with Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite. And it was written to the chief musician. And David was prepared to have all of that displayed before all Israel. His own sin. That they might learn from his experience. And this lamentation is recorded for that same purpose. You know what the theme of this lamentation is? The theme of the lamentation is, How are the mighty fallen?" And it occurs in verse 19, verse 25 and verse 27. And you know, that phrase when it is used, and we do hear it used in the brotherhood, is unfortunately very often used in the wrong way. I've heard it used in relation to a brother who has been of some repute or standing, well known, respected, and he makes some foolish, stupid mistake And I've heard the expression used a little bit sneeringly, how are the mighty fallen. It's not used in that way at all. That's not what David is doing here. He's not using the term in that way at all. He's using it as a theme for what we have here. But you see, what he's showing, really, is what we have in Isaiah 40 and verse 6. Simply, all flesh is grass. Saul had been the king, the monarch. Jonathan had had a position of prominence as a prince in the kingdom. That was his standing. One was evil and one was godly. But the same end came upon them both. Isaiah 40 verse 6, all flesh is grass. That's what John the Baptist preached. All flesh is grass. You know that passage, you remember it in Ecclesiastes where it says it doesn't matter whether you're a, a wise man, a sensible man or whether you're a fool, there's one thing that comes upon all and that is death. The common enemy of man. And that is the sense in which David uses it here. So in verse 19 he says, the beauty of Israel is slain upon high places. The word beauty is a word which literally means a row or a roebuck and it's been translated in many different ways, beauty or beautiful, not very often, but it's been translated uh, in, in various different ways, pleasant, goodly, and so on. So, it, actually, it really relates to the roe or the gazelle, another wonderful animal in Israel. And the gazelle was recognised for its beauty and its speed and its swiftness of foot, its courage, its determination, with very limited resources within itself. So, the beauty of Israel was slain upon the high places. David sees all this in his mind. The beauty of Israel, slain, slaughtered, like going and machine gunning down a whole row of beautiful gazelles. And in verse 20 he says, Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Let the Ecclesia separate from the Gentiles and let them mourn apart. The Gentile world, the uncircumcised in heart, they cannot understand why we mourn, when we mourn, on a spiritual basis. Matthew 5 and verse 4, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. The world doesn't understand that we mourn the absence of our Lord, that the first day of every week, or on the table of the Lord, we mourn as we remember his death and the suffering and the agony that he went through, that we might be saved. The world doesn't understand that. You don't go to the Gentiles to mourn about things of the truth, not only because it's casting pearl before swine, but because the, the simple fact of the matter is they don't understand. They wouldn't know. And also, there's another point as well, and that is that no one in the Ecclesia should rejoice among the Gentiles in what happens to people like Saul or Jonathan. So there's again the words of Peter come to mind here in the first of Peter chapter 2 and at verse 15 when he said thereby by well-doing put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. That's what David means here. By well-doing put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. We don't gain pleasure from publicising the shortcomings or the deaths or anything else of of those within the body, no matter who they are or what they are. Don't go to the daughters of the Philistines about it. So, remember that, he says, and and make sure that Israel remains separate in your mourning and in your suffering, as in your joy and rejoicing. Keep away from the Gentiles. And then in verse 21, you'll notice, he curses Mount Gilboa, which might seem rather strange, but it's simply following the poetic custom of the Hebrew idiom. David virtually placed a curse upon Mount Gilboa, Because of the evil that had occurred there, and that's not uncommon. You might recall that Jeremiah uh, cursed uh, the day he was born, at a time of a deep mourning in his life. Cursed the day that he had been born to emphasise the extent of his grief. And so, in verse 22, he goes on to say, "From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty." Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives and in their death They were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. So, here David is remembering that there had been a battle. But there comes an end to the battle. It's a bit like Paul in the 2nd of Timothy, chapter 4 and verse 7. I have fought a good fight. That's the battle. But for Paul, the battle was over. And after that, of course, comes the judgment. And so in verse 23, he says, Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives. And in their death, they were undivided. They were not divided. The literal Hebrew there should be rendered, Saul and Jonathan, the lovely and pleasant. Neither in their lives nor in their death were they divided. And that's a reminder that Jonathan never allowed himself to become divided from his father in the sense that he ever betrayed him. While at the same time, as we've said earlier, he never supported Saul's wrongdoing. But they were father and son, whichever way we look at it. And in verse 24, ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. Weep over him who clothed you in scarlet. And remember how that earlier they had celebrated Saul's triumphs. In the first of Samuel, chapter 18 and verse 6, the women came out and sang songs concerning Saul's triumphs. He says David is saying here now, don't forget him now. And don't forget to honour him because he was Yahweh's anointed. And he did fight battles on Yahweh's behalf. So now they should mourn his death. Don't forget those things. He clothed you in scarlet, which was a way of saying that during the better times of Saul's reign, when they happily came out to sing songs and dance about his great victories, they had known about those things. Don't forget them. Don't put them away. And then in verse 25 and 26 and 27, we have the final words of this very, very beautiful and very moving lamentation. But we'll have to leave those until our next class, next week, God willing, We'll have a look at those. How are the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? O Jonathan, thou wast slain in thine high places. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How are the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished?